Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade. For trade nerds and normal human beings alike, I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming, and I'm here with my co-host, friend, and colleague, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What is up, Tim? Good morning, Brian. It's still very early here in Washington. It is very, it is very early. This is contrary to our general ethos of uh, recording late in the day, but it is uh, Memorial Day weekend here in the States, and uh, it is a gloomy, rainy day here in the DMV, which right. I suppose is fitting given given current circumstances, but uh, we're going to make the best of it. We're going to, we're excited about what we have to talk about today, uh, and hopefully this will uh, this will be up just after Memorial Day in the, in the States next week, so uh, hopefully, hopefully there won't be seismic events occurring over the weekend that will make everything that we say today obsolete, right. which is uh, always possible. I was going to say, that's Given the way that's things are trending likely, these days. right. Yeah. But I, I think I will think of this forevermore as the coffee episode. Because normally <laughs> yeah. I'm not drinking coffee during one of these. That's true. We are Tim and I are heavily reliant on caffeine at this point to uh, to stay sharp for the podcast. So um, <laughs> before we before we get started, the normal disclaimer: we're not here giving legal advice. We're not sharing any confidential information. Uh, we are just here giving you our unvarnished views on uh, the latest, greatest uh, sort of crazy developments coming out of. Uh, mostly the U.S. government relating to sanctions, export controls, and U.S. and international trade. Um, we also, as always, would like to encourage everybody uh, who enjoys the pod to please subscribe. Uh, we put up a new episode every two weeks. Uh, please give us a rating. Uh, you can find us anywhere, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. You can see us on YouTube. Uh, Tim is recording this from virtual Charlottesville uh, today. It's lovely down there. Uh, and uh, yeah, we, and thank you to everybody who reached out after the, the China extravaganza. Um, that was a, that was a fun one. Uh, a lot of good feedback on that episode. And thanks again to our, our guest and friend, Mr. Richard Mojica for joining us on that one. I'm sure we'll have him back on a future episode. Um, and I think with that, anything, Tim, before we get started? It's, we're going right back to China. We can't stay away. We are indeed. So uh, just a quick rundown again of the roadmap, just for anybody who's listening that may want to uh, jump to specific segments. So we're going to start, of course, with Huawei and the big uh, developments there. Uh, we're going to move then to the prospects for potentially uh, U.S. sanctions actually targeting China, uh, as that has uh, heated up now, given uh, a number of different events of the last few weeks. Uh, then we'll go to Venezuela. We'll talk mostly about Ninus coming off the SDN list, but some broader issues there. And then in the in the last general topic, we're going to hit the maritime uh, advisory that was issued jointly by Treasury State and the Coast Guard last week. And then the lightning round, we'll hit three of our favorite topics, Iran, Syria, and Cuba. Syria, actually, first time I think we're going to hit a Syria topic, but um, those three are on the sanctions Mount Rushmore. So we'll hit those quickly in the, in the um, lightning round and then uh, we will we will be on our way. So uh, without any uh, further delay, let's turn right to topic number one, which is the big news uh, relating to Huawei that was first announced uh, a week ago. Uh, this leaked out on Friday, the 15th of May, and uh, we, uh, we saw a press release later that day from the Commerce Department, and then the, the new rule actually was released uh, earlier this week. Uh, we're recording this on May 22nd, so it was just earlier, a few days ago. 
for those who have, who have missed this, the, the big news here is that, and this is something we have talked about a lot on the pod over the, the past couple months. Uh, so rather than now speculating, we have actually a, a new rule that has come out from the US government, from commerce, to try to squeeze Huawei a little bit more, to try to close what are perceived loopholes relating to the entity listing that went into effect a year ago with regard to Huawei and its foreign affiliates. And to give a very quick overview of that, this is a this is somewhat of a technical and I would say unprecedented rule. Uh, we we don't we haven't seen anything like this before uh, from the Commerce Department, but um, it is at the end of the day quite narrow in scope ultimately. And what the rule does is it amends the foreign direct product rule. And this is again one possibility that we've discussed previously on the on the pod. And it does so uh, with respect to the scenario that it, it addresses is, and I'm going to oversimplify this, but this is putting this in lay terms, and I encourage anybody who is uh, having to deal with this perhaps firsthand to re review the rule, review the, pre the press release, and, um, and you know, take a careful look at this. But uh, essentially, the new rule makes... Uh, make subject to the AR certain designs uh, and certain technology that is being produced on, on certain software and technology um, that is controlled under the 300 series, the 400 series, the 500 series. There are certain ECCNs under there that are, that are called out here that are designed, these designs are done by Huawei. So Huawei's designs, and so now those, if they're made on certain US technology, Again, 300, 400, 500 series under certain ECCNs that are identified in the rule. That's now subject to the AR. And then the other piece of this is uh, the semiconductor uh, fabrication process and the foundries that are doing that. And so if any of the foundries are producing Huawei designed chips on US tech, again, 300, 400, 500 series, and they know that those chips are then going to be destined for Huawei or any of its affiliates, then that also is subject to the AR. So at the end of the day, what this is really doing, what this rule is really doing is it is a pretty precise uh, sort of strike uh, on this piece of the Huawei supply chain with respect to its ability to design chips on US technology and its ability to have chips produced for them that are done using US equipment, US technology, US software. And, uh, and again, those chips have to then be sent back to Huawei to even be caught by this rule or its affiliates. So it is a pretty tight rule at the end of the day. I've, I've heard that there were, um, they were considering perhaps even limiting this to certain um, specs on the chips in terms of nanometers and other things, but they, they ultimately didn't do that. So I suppose it could have been even narrower, but this is about as narrow as it could have been. And so I think that bring that raises kind of the first question, sort of two questions that I'll throw to Tim. Number one is, um, you know, beyond Huawei, its affiliates and the foundries that are making these chips, do, who really needs to worry about this, right? As a compliance matter, who, who really needs to be worrying about this, number one. And number two is, do we think this is gonna work? Is this gonna have the intended consequence that commerce is looking for? Because again, 
the entity listing apparently didn't work to the degree that they were hoping it would. And now this is an attempt to close a loophole, a perceived loophole by trying to cut Huawei off from its ability to have chips produced uh, to its own specs. Is this going to work? So number one, who's it affecting? Number two, do we think this is going to work? So, so first of all, on the who's affected point, I mean, it really is Huawei. And, and one of the things that we had been concerned about earlier when we were talking about some of these potential measures was that the, the Commerce Department would rewrite either the entire foreign direct uh, product rule or the, or the de minimis rules in a way that would affect the entire uh, export administration regulations, that this was going to be have some sort of huge unintended effect in the process of going after Huawei. Having looked at what they've done and, and basically putting it all into one footnote uh, in the EAR, um, it's pretty clear that, the, that unless you are buying and selling certain products from Huawei and there's some involvement in Huawei in the design or custom order process that you don't really have a lot to worry about. And, and it's really mostly chip, chips is, is really what uh, the Commerce Department really decided to target on this. And so, so in terms of the effect of the rule, it's going to be narrow, but I suspect that it is an area that uh, could cause Huawei considerable pain because it sounds like it was pretty carefully considered by the Commerce Department before they put it out. So, so I, yeah, I would say, I would add to that quickly. I've seen, so it, it, since this came out, we've seen statements publicly from top level management at Huawei where some have, some to the degree that, oh, this is an existential threat. And then the others to say, well, our supply chain is large and varied and we'll get beyond this. So it, it's hard to know, and they're not going to necessarily, uh, you know, start uh, trying to, you know, make their case in, in the public domain necessarily. We know they're likely to be working behind the scenes with folks in China and elsewhere to try to address this. But um, yeah, so it's hard to know. It's hard to know right now. So, so that, so, so, but it, it does look to me like it's going to have some effect. And, and I think you're, you're right, Brian, that, you know, to the extent we're already hearing statements outside coming out of Huawei, that this is going to have this, this change could be an existential threat, that it could have a considerable effect. We'll, we'll have to see. But I think the, the interesting question, the most interesting question is the second one that you posed. And that is, so what's the end game? And it's, that still isn't totally clear to me. I was talking to a reporter on, on Friday who had, had had some conversations with Huawei and, and Huawei said, was, was apparently saying, how do we, what are we supposed to do? That is, what do they want us to do? And, and at least according you know, to, to what I was hearing, Huawei said that, that there are no negotiations going on and it doesn't sound like U.S. policymakers want to have negotiations with them. And so to the extent that they're ratcheting up the pressure on Huawei so that they don't get U.S. origin technology, that's, that's all good and well. But at least the last time the U.S. used the entity list with respect to ZTE, there was an end game, and, and maybe it's the same end game, which is that the U.S. wants Huawei to plead guilty to the charges in New York and, you know, uh, agree to a monitor and agree to essentially change its behavior. But that, you know, the, the ZTE case was mostly about uh, transshipments to Iran, whereas it's not clear to me that that's really what Huawei is about. Huawei, I think, is about something bigger, and in some ways, it's connection to the Chinese government. It is potential trade secret theft. 
and and it's not clear to me that that Huawei is is in a position to admit to that, to really do something about that. I think they're essentially denying that that's going on. And so it's not totally clear to me kind of what the ultimate point is other than to cause Huawei pain, because I'm not sure how you get them to the bargaining table, and it sounds like they're not there right now, and then what the bargain is to be struck. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, is, is that this is, a, this is just a purely punitive measure. This is not meant to... This is not meant to bring them to the table or to bring them to heel. This is just to inflict pain. And I think it's, so just as a sort of larger big picture background point, I think Huawei is fundamentally different than just about anybody else at this point in the eyes of US policymakers in part because of the, the, the idea that they are so intermingled with the Chinese government and with Chinese government's desire to, again, steal intellectual property, to uh, you know, uh, to undertake malicious cyber activity, to steal sensitive data from the U.S. and elsewhere, to all of the all of the you know malign activities that the U.S. government pins on the Chinese government, Huawei is essentially the is is kind of the poster child for that at this point. And I don't think there is going to be certainly under this administration, there's not going to be any let up there. That is going to be a they will continue to be sort of a target and a punching bag uh, till you know the last days of again of this administration at least, if not if not beyond. And I don't think that's going to change. And and other than if somehow these measures were able to put actually put Huawei out of business, which as we all know the Chinese government will, is never going to allow. So uh, in all likelihood. So th then the question is. Okay, so what is the what is this really going to do? So I think, and I've heard, and similarly, just from having discussions with others around DC, and uh, and reporters who are hearing things from Huawei and others over in in China, you know, it seems to me that this is um, it's a it's an attempt to try to you know just make things that much harder for Huawei and to level the playing field a little bit. Because again, if the, the primary target here, yes, it's Huawei, but it's also, it's the foundries. It's the semiconductor. It's the ability to fabricate chips and design, produce, fabricate chips, right? So if it's that much harder now for these, and as, for those who don't know, the the idea here is, or the the notion that this was needed is because even after the entity listing, Huawei could have its U.S. Uh, technology, which was, you know, that they had previously acquired, and they could design their chips, and they could send those chip designs to chip makers in Taiwan and China and other places, and they could have their chips made, you know, without any interference by the U.S. government. There was nothing the U.S. government could do that was just outside of their jurisdiction. So this now brings all of that within their jurisdiction, and that is the number one thing that they're looking for here is to be able to have some say and to just make this more difficult, to add extra steps, to have them have to reorient supply chain. Because I, I will say that I would imagine that the, the, the chip makers, the foundries, they are going to be concerned about the US government, even, even the ones in China, because you know, they're, I mean, maybe they, will, maybe they will thumb their nose at this and say, well, the Chinese government has my back, I don't care. But at the end of the day, those, those, they're now all essentially on notice of they were to continue to do business as usual and supply this now subject to the AAR technology and items to Huawei, they are almost assuredly going to end up on the entity list themselves if they were going to do something like that. So I think 
another interesting wrinkle, another interesting question here is the idea that, um, okay, this has, you know, this rule has, again, it's a very tight sequence of events that, that have to happen for, for this to be, for things to be caught under the rule. Um, you know, there has to be knowledge, there has to be, you know, the designs have to be made on certain technology that's, that is, you know, so that's uh, US technology. The production has to be made on certain technology. Um, it strikes me that there are, there are going to be some gray areas here. Like for, for instance, somebody asked me the other day, well, what would happen if, what would happen if Huawei designs are already out of foundry and they're making chips to these specs? And then instead of sending the chips back to Huawei, which would be, which would need a license, um, they send them to a third party and the third party integrates them into a product and then sends them off to distributors and they never go back to Huawei. Is that, that by the letter of the rule, I don't think that's caught, right? That doesn't, that wouldn't be caught. Right. So as long as the, the third, case, right. As long as the third party isn't just some stalking horse for Huawei. Right. I mean, it, right. But arguably that yeah that's exactly right but um that's an interesting fact pattern right and so yeah. what's to say that they don't already have those arrangements in place to try to use the pre-existing designs technology now again the foundries and the semiconductor fabs they're potentially going to be they're bearing a lot of the risk in that and, and i don't know if they'll go along with that but um interest that that's just an interesting question and we don't we don't really know and, and i think time will tell and there's a there's a 120 day grace period here for any any designs that are already in process essentially for for production that's already started as of the date of the rule and so it you know it may be not until late this year maybe early next year that we really get a sense of what this impact might be as you know anecdotally we get some data from from the, the foundries and and you know the other pieces of this puzzle yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And it's really interesting when you compare this with the last time with the ZTE enforcement matter, the last time that the Commerce Department tried to use the entity list in this way. In ZTE, just the threat of the entity list, because there was a temporary general license that kept getting renewed. So they weren't even really on the entity list, but just the threat of the entity list completely changed their behavior. Here, Huawei has been on the entity list now for I think uh, about a year and and the the their ability to uh, live on the entity list with some really limited general licenses that allow some some US products to get to them but not very many has been has been so much so different and so so much stronger than than ZTE's ability to to live even with the threat of the entity list that it's going to be interesting to see if this is what puts them over the edge and then if it does like where does it go from there because i i i really do think that um getting huawei to the table to say how do we make this stop is is that even if that conversation took place, it's not clear to me what the response from the U.S. would be because I'm not sure that the U.S. there's anything Huawei could do that would satisfy the U.S. short of a, essentially just doing what ZTE did, which is pleading guilty to everything, putting a monitor in, and essentially letting the U.S. into inside Huawei to run the business. And I yeah, I just and I don't just see that happening. I can't ever see that happening. And so I, I think just just to sort of start to wrap up here on this one, um, just a couple of thoughts. Just I think you know, the difference in some ways is the nature of the perceived threat, right? So in ZT, we're talking about, you know, transshipping U.S. control technology to, you know, to sanction countries. And here we're talking about 
yes, there's there's some of that in the criminal cases that's kind of in the background, but at the end of the day, it's a much broader, more pernicious threat in the views of the in the view of the U.S. government, right? It is essentially equating letting Huawei stay in our lives or stay in the have a have a meaningful presence in the U.S. and have access to U.S. technology is akin to sort of letting the Chinese government have you know, a front row seat to all those things to do whatever mischief that they would seek to do. So that is, I think, a fundamentally different thing. And then the second thing is, you know, it's just that this is a, a supply chain issue, right? I mean, it, it, by trying to target this one aspect of Huawei's supply chain, um, you, you know, we'll see how they respond and whether they have a, a viable alternatives that might allow them to continue relatively you know, sort of un, uh, undeterred here, or whether this is a massive disruption, as clearly BIS and the U.S. government hope it will be. I think that remains to be seen. And this is sort of coming back to what we talked about on our China episode last time, is that the question of sort of global supply chains and how these things are all interconnected. And, um, and you know, one of the main foundries that's in play here, they just announced just right before this that they were going to be having opening a U.S. Uh, facility in, in Arizona, that's TSMC. Um, now, I don't think it's gonna be a, a large facility, but it's an interesting move that that would be announced right before this. So, um, you know, th these things are all, everything is kind of in related here. And um, it's it's not always coordinated seemingly in the most elegant way, but I think these are these things are all informing one another and speaking to one another on, on some level. So it'll be fascinating to see how it all plays out from here. Yeah, the timing of that announcement seems like it would be weird if it were a coincidence. So I doubt my, that it my is. Con, my putting my tinfoil hat on, I would, with no inside knowledge, my, my suspicion is that they were tipped off that this was going to be announced and they wanted to get out in front of that with some news that would have some, you know, positive kind of optics associated with it, both in the eyes of the U.S. government and the investment community and elsewhere. That's my guess. But That's, that's what it looked like to me, too. Yeah, I, I, I will say Huawei has proven surprisingly nimble and adaptable throughout this in a way that I, I think the U.S. has surprised U.S. regulators. I think that's right. I think that they not that they were assuming this that the energy listening would make them sort of roll over and die but but i think that again if the if at the end of the day this is about inflicting pain and if the the consensus is at this point that not not enough pain has been inflicted so we got to try something else uh then yeah i think huawei has been resilient I, one last comment from me is on that on that score, I would not be surprised if this is not going to be the last we hear of this. So right. I don't think anybody should. I don't think anybody should assume that this is the last measure we're going to see on this front. Um, as as we said at the outset, there were a number of things that were much broader that were on the table that were being discussed. I, I would also add that the the response to this measure from certain U.S. interests that are typically very vocal when these things happen, like for example, when the military and user and use rules came out um, a few weeks ago has been pretty muted. I think, um, you know, the semiconductor industry and other industries in the U.S. relatively muted from what, from what I see. So I think they understand on some level, they probably dodged a bullet on this one and they don't want to, you know, upset the apple cart. They'll just, they'll take this one and move on. And, uh, and so, yeah, it'll be fascinating to see if six months from now there's, you know, we're revisiting this, or if there's a perception that Huawei is just, you know, flagrantly trying to 
evade this in some fashion, then I wouldn't be surprised if we're looking at, you know, version 3.0 of this uh, well, in a few months. One question that I had, which seemed inconceivable to me, you know, you and I had talked about this quite a bit a year ago, is do they ever start thinking about the SDN list? I mean, that is certainly the the nuclear bomb you can throw in there if you really think that the entity listings and changing the definitions of various U.S. origin products isn't working. I, I still don't see that happening just because of the, the potential fallout internationally, but it, it certainly is something that could happen. Yeah, that's a good, that's a great point. Um, and that's a great segue to uh, item number right. two that we're going to talk Let's... about, which is, um, which is the, the, I, I don't know that I want to say that it's gaining momentum, but certainly there's much more noise in the last two weeks relating to China and sanctions against China. So why don't I turn to Tim to, to, jump into that. Yeah. So one thing that definitely, you know, is gaining momentum and, and why I guess I should give a high level summary of what's going on here. So there is there are currently is no US sanctions policy per se, certainly not an OFAC program, program, no program. Yeah. Um, with respect to China. But there has been a lot of discussion in the media over the last six months or so with respect to beginning some uh, OFAC sanctions programs that would be passed by Congress and essentially handed to the president to start uh, imposing sanctions through Treasury and through through OFAC against uh, various Chinese actors involved in certain types of conduct. And so the, the three areas in which I've seen these sorts of sanctions programs uh, talked about recently are first with respect to the Chinese government's treatment of the, the Uyghurs. So these are essentially human rights sanctions. Uh, and there was a bill that was passed uh, in the House last December uh, that would have uh, allowed the president to impose sanctions for human rights violations. It also actually had some export control provisions that would have uh, restricted U.S. exports of certain types of materials that uh, were suspected of being potentially involved in these human rights abuses. So that's one set of sanctions. There's another set of sanctions that I've seen that involves um, the 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 Chinese response to COVID and, and the, at least the perception of the U.S. administration that it wasn't sufficient or that it wasn't transparent. That set of sanctions is also there. There are some bills out there that have focused on those. And then, actually, as of this morning, there's another type of sanctions that is is being talked about with respect to the the the, the PRC's uh, attempt to impose a security law on Hong Kong. Um, and my understanding is that there's some discussion of unilaterally imposing the security law. Previously, uh, there, the, the Hong Kong government uh, was talking about voting this in. That was the cause of some protests, uh, quite a few protests in Hong Kong, and that security law had been tabled. But in the last week, uh, the PRC has talked about imposing that from, from uh, mainland onto Hong Kong. And there's already some discussion in the Senate, as I understand it, about imposing sanctions with respect to that. And that bill that, I mean, I, I'm not sure there's any language on it yet, but the concept of that one in particular would be much broader than the other two, because I, I suspect that the the Uyghurs bill, and, and I can talk a little bit more about that in a second, because that one actually is pretty close to becoming a law. Um, and the COVID bill would be mostly targeted at people who were involved in the, uh, who were involved in 
in the PRC or companies, but mostly people and, and government officials involved in the, those policies. Whereas my understanding of the potential Hong Kong sanctions is that it would target financial institutions in Hong Kong. And thus the effect of that would be much, much broader if it, if it were to take place. Uh, the only thing that I would, would add to, to this is that the, the Uyghurs bill in particular, the sanctions for uh, human rights abuses with respect to the Uyghurs, it passed the House in December. It had that export control provision that was a little bit controversial. Recently, the Senate actually, I think in the last week, passed its own version of this law and it was passed by unanimous consent. So it was had strong bipartisan support, strong enough to just get it on the floor without any opposition in the Senate. It passed uh, and is now being sent back to the House, which has already passed it. I think the vote was 407 to one uh, in, in last December. And so, you know, if they, assuming that the, the differences have been already been worked out, that actually could be on the president's desk relatively soon. I think the effect of that bill will be somewhat limited because it, it really does target pretty surgically um, some areas within China that OFAC could impose sanctions. Uh, and, and we can talk in a second. OFAC already has the ability to impose sanctions against various Chinese uh, government or various Chinese individuals and companies and, and has done so recently through other programs like the Iran program, but this would be just another tool, but it, but it is one that uh, I think will have limited effect. The other ones could be much broader. Yeah, I think the, um, and, and also I think the, and to, to be clear also, the Hong Kong security law that it, Tim was referencing, I, I, I only first saw mention of this in the press yesterday, right? right. That, that Beijing was even considering this. And then less than 24 hours later, some, a number of senators are talking about introducing something to counteract that essentially. So that's, that's definitely, I think of the three, that's the one that probably has the, um, the biggest chance to kind of light a fire under people and to potentially end up with something that's that could be quite broad, as Tim said. Obviously, if the financial if financial institutions are you know directly uh, in the crosshairs on this, then that is just a that's just a total different level of magnitude as opposed to government officials that may be involved in some of these activities. So um, that's number one. Um, there's all. I think there's also. So to be clear, we're at a pretty early stage with all this. So, but we, we. This is obviously. This could be monumental if if any of this really gets off the ground, or if some combination of these measures really gets off the ground. Uh, so we did think it was worth flagging. Uh, also, I, I should. You know, it's possible that some of these measures could end up being combined. I could see that there would be, especially if the Uyghurs and the Hong Kong aspect, the, the sort of human rights thread there is it ties those together maybe they all that all gets pulled together the covid response you know harder to know sort of what that's that's obviously it's less pretty, bipartisan. pretty fraught i think that's right. less that is definitely less bipartisan yes um and so the others though i think you're not going to get much opposition uh on the the uyghur front or the hong kong front in terms of the human rights abuses and, and other related aspects there so i would say um the the thing to keep in mind, and also, you know, the president could also just issue an executive order, you know, today or next week if he wanted to, to essentially stand up one of these programs. If if he was frustrated that Congress was taking too long or didn't like the way that they were sort of d defining the parameters of it, 
this could this could theoretically just be stood up via executive order, and that's always possible. But um, I would say that one thing to bear in mind, and this sort of leads to our next um, the next piece of this discussion is. At present, there is, as Tim said at the beginning, there is no China sanctions program that OFAC administers. There is no, if you go to the OFAC webpage and you go down to the country programs and the specific subject matter programs, there's nothing that says People's Republic of China. It would be a big deal if there were such a program. This Absolutely. would be a very big deal, symbolically, politically, it would be a very big deal. This would be a huge, a huge, sort of, uh, you know, spitting the eye of China if this were to happen. And the, of, of course, the rhetoric coming out of China is this is all illegitimate and, 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 you know, politically motivated and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, I think now more than ever, there's probably a, a decent likelihood that some combination of the things we're talking about do actually come into effect in the next, you know, couple months, let's say. And, and so that would be, beyond just whatever the you know black letter coverage of that would be in terms of the parties and the individuals and the institutions it may affect in China or outside of China, that symbolic um, weight is not to be discounted. And, and, that's, uh, on, and that is being said, even though today there are many ways that the US government can get at uh, actors in China for via their sanctions tools, that the, the existing sanctions tools, and and so there was one there was one act, action in particular in the last few days that that kind of jumped out at us, which was um, relating to an old sort of favorite of of Treasury Mahan Air in Iran and and an actor in in China. And Tim, what did you what what were your thoughts on on that? Yeah, I mean that was just on Tuesday. Um, Shanghai Saint Logistics Limited, which was apparently Mahan's uh, agent in China, was put onto the SDN list. So I think that just proves your point, Brian, that th there there already is a way to impose sanctions against uh, individuals and companies within China. It just isn't through a China sanctions program. But I think you're exactly right that it would be a very big uh, development if OFAC had a China sanctions program and, and a China sanctions page on its website with all of the different rules and general licenses that would accompany that. I think it would be just just symbolically the idea that China would be a, a sanctioned country in, in U.S. parliaments would be really very it, not only not only a big development, but but also uh, very unusual in terms of U.S. sanctions programs because the size of the Chinese economy, the size of China, uh, the size of China as a trading U.S. trading partner is, is just very different from any other country with which the, there's a sanctions program. It's just you know Russia is probably the biggest country that we have sanctions on right now, and the U.S. Russian trade even before the sanctions was pretty small. Yeah, and and I would and I would add just kind of as a final thought on this, that, um, you know, we know that uh, even though China is regarded, I think in most, in many compliance circles as sort of a higher risk country, right? Whether it's for corruption risk or money laundering risk or certainly sanctions or trade related risks. Um, if they, if there were, you know, OFAC programs targeting specific activities in China. And again, there was sort of a page on the OFAC website that was the you know, People's Republic of China sanctions program. Um, that could very well, the way people tweak their compliance 
uh, procedures around the world, certainly financial institutions, but even more broadly than that, could definitely have a negative impact on China, regardless of whether there would be any sort of d direct you know, impact from the sanctions, because right. if people are going to view China as that much more you know, risky, and it's going to be that much more of an impediment to doing business there, uh, then that is almost certainly going to have some kind of negative impact on them, which may, at the end of the day, be what, you know, Congress and the president and treasury would like to see. Right. And it, particularly if this is just focused on the, the treatment of the Uyghurs, um, the, the, the direct implications for U.S. commerce with China are pretty minimal. But I agree with you that that from a compliance perspective, if China goes onto a, a list of countries that are subject to OFAC sanctions, that does change the, the compliance attitude from U.S. companies in a way that, you know, is, is, it's already a, a relatively high risk country for reasons of diversion and the, the, the Mahan designation or the, the Mahan agent designation just shows that again, that, you know, if you're dealing with China, you do have risks of reaching out to Iran or risks of entity list entities kind of diverting to the Chinese military. But this is, this would be a, a very, very different type of development than anything we've seen before. Yeah. And just one final thought before we move on is, uh, you know, I, as we said, as Tim discussed the, the Iran-related sanctions that were imposed on the Mahan agent in Shanghai. Um, there is, for those who are unaware, there's the, the Global Magnitsky Program, which allows the U.S. essentially to go after human rights abusers anywhere around the world. Right. And so with respect to the Uyghurs and respect to potentially the, you know, uh, crackdown on the Hong Kong demonstrators, um, those that tool is there right now. I mean, so there there is no there's not necessarily a reason that you would have to create something new to go after those types of actors. Uh, again, though, um, there's, there's, I think, much more play here and much more at stake. So um, this, this is gonna be, this will be really interesting, especially as more comes out about what's, what's going to happen in Hong Kong after the, um, the latest round of um, proposals are being considered and presumably adopted in Beijing with respect to the security law and how that plays out with another round of demonstrations perhaps and and what happens there so this is one we, I'm sh I'm certain we will be coming back to probably multiple times over in the next few months um, yeah and I think the the Hong Kong issue could move pretty quickly because it if, could. if the PRC is 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 serious about uh, imposing the security law on Hong Kong uh, unilaterally, and it does it anytime soon. You could see Congress move because you know the the announcement was yesterday, and by today there are stories about a bipartisan Senate coalition introducing a sanctions bill related to this, and one that is much broader than anything that we've seen. Right. Yeah. Uh, good point. Absolutely. So timing will be uh, interesting to see on that, and and uh, so we we'll, we will be keeping an eye, and we'll we'll be circling back to this in, in the future. So with that, let's move. Um, Let's move over to uh, Venezuela to get caught up there. Uh, and in particular, the, the big news that has a couple of different dimensions to it of interest is the fact that Ninus, the, uh, which was formerly now the, uh, a uh, majority owned interest of PDVSA, the Venezuelan state um, oil company, um, it was just announced last week that Ninus had restructured 
and PDVSA had reduced its ownership interest to from just over 50% down to 15%. And as a result of that, OFAC had reviewed all of that and was uh, and announced that uh, Ninus was going to come off of the SDN list as a result because they were no longer 50% owned by an SDN. So that is a that's notable in and of itself because we don't uh, you know obviously um, with some of the Russia sanctions and Rusal a couple of years ago we saw th there was a big a lot of scrutiny paid to that and and similarly there was a, a lengthy negotiation and OFAC um, approved reorganization to to help them come off the list. Uh, but we don't see this too often. So that in and of itself is, is of interest. But I think now the, this, the sort of second life to the story, which maybe we didn't see coming, that has been uh, reported on more in the past few days is the idea that um, this deal, the restructuring, was negotiated apparently by the Maduro uh, team and the Guaido team, who the opposition team, that is the recognized government of Venezuela by the U.S. and many other countries, um, has cried foul and said, "Well, we never, we never approve this, and we don't, we don't necessarily want uh, our state oil company to give up a massive stake in this valuable uh, enterprise." And and so they're calling for an investigation and and to you know to sort of claw back what has already been done here, and so. Um, let me so let me throw it to you, Tim. So what, I know you're very you're sort of very close to this for a variety of reasons, and are, are hearing all sorts of interesting tidbits on this. So what are you hearing on this, and what do you make of all this? So it's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I think that was something that when the general license um, was was revoked and and Ninas came off the SDN list, uh, that there wasn't a lot of uh, discussion, and there still hasn't been, to, to my knowledge, of, of how uh, how Petavesa was able to divest from Ninas. That is, like, what were the details? And I don't think there's been any reporting on what the details of the divestment really are, other than that I, I think um, the, that Petavesa's stake is significantly below, at least what I've seen reported, significantly below 50%. But how did they give up this stake? Yeah, 35%, um, 35 right. of their stake went to, to a foundation is what right. was reported and what and what Nina said as well in their press release. That's right. that's what happened. Yeah. And how did how did these discussions take place? How was a deal done without OFAC's approval? Or at least it got OFAC's approval, but we haven't really seen any sign of exactly what that approval looked like. And then how does Petavesa which is on the SDN list and controlled by the Maduro government, engage in these sorts of negotiations uh, without the Waido group being in the room. And I, I think that that was kind of an, an interesting development. And what results from it is also going to be, I, I think, is also, it's wrapped up in Venezuela sanctions policy. So, you know, Ninas was an asset of the Venezuelan people. And as I understand it, Ninas is set up to deal with really almost exclusively Venezuelan crude. And my understanding is that Venezuelan crude has certain attributes that uh, that makes refining it different than refining other oil products. It doesn't mean it's necessarily harder or easier, but you need different equipment. And so Ninas was set up to deal with Venezuelan crude in a way that now that it's not a Venezuelan-owned company anymore, and as I understand it, the way that 
OFAC has still set up this delisting process, Nina still isn't allowed to buy Venezuelan crude. And so not only has Venezuela, a Venezuelan asset been divested by the Maduro government, which I think was the opposite of what U.S. sanctions policy was in that area, but it's been divested in a way that may change that asset going forward so that even once Maduro leaves, if Nina's changes its business model and is not kind of a Venezuelan oil refinery over in Europe, it may be that that, that asset and that sort of um, buyer for Venezuelan crude and all of the all of the infrastructure that's been built in connection with building Ninas as a essentially a Venezuelan crude um, refinery goes away, and so it dries up a market permanently for Venezuela, regardless of what happens with Maduro. And I'm not sure that that sort of thought process really took place, or at least it doesn't it doesn't seem like it took place from looking in from the outside during the negotiating process. And so I think we may, this may not be the last that we hear about uh, Ninas or Ninas um, going forward, because uh, it, it, they've been taken off the SDN list, but where they go from here and whether the Wido team has a, has a another card to play on this, I think is going to be worth watching. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. So um, the other thing to keep in mind here too, in the background, we haven't, um, we haven't really circled back to this since we first talked about it, you know, maybe a month, month and a half ago is the, the massive US criminal case and criminal investigation against Maduro and a number of the senior government officials or former government officials in Venezuela. And, uh, you know, I just saw a report this week just kind of documenting the scope of that effort and how broad that investigation is and how even in the time of COVID, things remain pretty active and there's a lot, a lot going on. Um, as we said at the time, you know, that that's kind of a that's a bit of a wild card that's kind of injected into this whole situation where if there's serious movement there or if Maduro were ever to be captured and extradited to the U.S., then you know, that could be a true game changer here. And, um, and, and so it'll, that'll be interesting to see how, how that sort of factors in as well. But, but I, I take, I think your point about um, what we're not hearing is, is a good one. And, and so it'll be interesting to see if, if OFAC or any other parties that were involved in this uh, come forward with more details. I would, I, I am in, in particular thinking back again, I mentioned Rusal at the outset when they were when they were taken off the list or their em plus was taken off the list um there was a very detailed letter from ofac that sort of laid out a lot of the kind of parameters and the details of of the the whole reorganization that was made public at the time and you know we don't have anything like that we have a press release from the company we have some other statements and then we have now apparently a lot of um, unhappy people in uh, the Guaido camp that are, to Tim's point, likely thinking, "Well, this is this is a this amounts to essentially a dissipation of a very valuable Venezuelan asset that we never, you know, consented to." So, how do how do those things get reconciled, and where does this go from here? Is I, I don't know, but I think Tim is exactly right that. I don't think we've heard the last of this. Well, and one of the things, just as you were talking, Brian, that, that you know, I, that I haven't seen is is what did PDVSA get in return? Like, the, you know, the whole point of U.S. sanctions policy is to deprive Maduro of operating capital, and you know, it, it, the the report suggests that PDVSA sold a thirty five percent stake in a 
you know, a huge oil refining company over in Europe. Did they, what did OFAC allow them to get in return for that? Yeah, presumably they didn't get a tanker full of gold bars sent back right. to uh, Caracas, but uh, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. Petro, we don't know. You know Petros, I mean. <laughs> right. Yeah, we have no, I have no idea. No idea. So um, yeah, that's a very good point. Very good point. We don't have any of those details. Is, is the money sitting in a blocked account somewhere? Is um, yeah, we don't know, um, but pre presumably those those details were all uh, you know sort of dealt with and and blessed by OFAC, but we we don't have them at this point. So um, I think for now we'll leave it there, um, and uh, you know we'll 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 circle back circle back on that I'm sure in the future. And and speaking of tankers full of gold bars, let's turn to our final <laughs> big topic, which is the uh, the maritime advisory that was just issued last week. Yes. So on May 14th, OFAC uh, put out a sanctions advisory for the maritime industry, energy and metal sectors and related communities. And, uh, and the title of this was guidance to address illicit shipping and sanctions evasions practices. Now this is, we've seen similar uh, announcements and similar advisories from OFAC over the course of the last two years. They've generally been country related. And so there was one for North Korea, there was one for Syria, there was one for Iran. In some ways, this just consolidates the guidance because uh, it essentially, it starts with something that I found very interesting. I, I, I'm sure I knew kind of kind of this fact, but I, I'd never really thought about it this concretely. It starts by pointing out that approximately 90% of global trade involves maritime transportation. So, so you know, if you are engaged in global sh trade, shipping nine, nine out of 10 times, shipping is the way that the the, the items with, with the way that the goods move. And so shipping has been instrumental, not because it's instrumental in trade, it's also instrumental in sanctions evasion. And so OFAC has been kind of pounding the drum on the shipping industry being a high risk industry for sanctions issues. It has sent out all of these individual country specific advisories over the course of the last two years. In this one, it kind of collects all of these advisories it really puts it all in one place, but then starts talking about in detail what sort of uh, evasive shipping practices that they've seen. And they, they give a list. Um, one of the biggest ones is disabling the automatic identification system, the AIS on ships, which essentially is a, a, a GPS on a ship that tells you where it is at all time and also sends out um, all sorts of other information about where the ship is headed. And, and so when you're engaged in sanctions evasion using a ship, one of the primary uh, ways of making sure that no one knows what you're up to is that there is disabling or manipulating the AIS, which is often prohibited by contract. Um, but OFAC puts this out as kind of a primary indicator that there are sanctions uh, evasion activity going on. Um, physically changing the vessel identifications, false documents, ship-to-ship um, -ship transfers, which they note, and, and there are a lot of legitimate reasons for ship-to-ship -ship transfers. My understanding is that the fishing industry all over the world, fishing boats stay out on the water for, for months and, and sometimes years at a time. And the way that they are able to fuel so that they can move around and look for better fishing sites is that a, there are 
there are entire industries where the ships are sent to refill fishing vessels. So there's ship-to-ship -ship transfers of oil, but that's also a way that you can get, uh, without going into a port in North Korea or a port in Iran or a port in Syria, you can transfer oil um, illicitly using ship-to-ship -ship transfers. And so OFAC cites that as a possible sign of uh, sanctions evasion. Irregularities in the voyage, um, manipulation of the flag, uh, the flagging, uh, the, what what country's flag is on the the ship, and and moving from ship registry to ship registry to to uh, hide some sort of sanctions evasion. Essentially, once one country catches on, you just switch to another country, and then complex ownership schemes that that essentially hide who really owns the vessel. So they they go through all of these in some detail, uh, talk about ways that companies can can. Uh, counteract that. Companies that want to uh, counteract that can do so using a compliance program, uh, monitoring AIS and, and knowing what the best practices are, monitoring ships while they're, you know, throughout the entire life cycle of a voyage to see if there's sanctions uh, evasion going on, supply chain due diligence, uh, KYC policy, that sort of thing in terms of counteracting it. So that was, that was all interesting. I think it's worth, if you're in the shipping industry, you should be taking a look at this, uh, particularly if you're doing business anywhere near Iran, Syria, or North Korea. Um, but I think that the, to me, the biggest takeaway is that it, the, there's an appendix attached to this, Annex A is what they call it. And it, it provides specific guidance to the certain industries. So it goes through maritime insurance companies, flag registry companies, port control authorities, shipping industry associations, um, commodity trading uh, supplier and brokering companies, financial institutions, ship owners, uh, ship classification societies, and vessel captains and crewing companies. And so they go through each, each group and give pointers as to how they can avoid sanctions evasion. I think this is kind of a list if you were trying to put together a list of the industries that are likely to be targeted in the future by OFAC that are going to be kind of on the firing line for sanctions evasion in the next three or four years. I think this would be a pretty good list. And so if you're in any of those industries, you'll want to take a careful look at this. You'll also probably want to think about really redoing your compliance program and, and gearing up because I think this is a warning shot that the U.S. regulators are coming after your industry for sanctions evasion going forward. And so if you're not ready for that, uh, you're going to have to be sometime soon. Yeah, I think so. Uh, by the way, a sure sign that you and I spend way too much time talking to one another is that the Annex A point, I think, is by far the most significant. I think we're 100% in agreement on that. I think that listing and that the way that those factors and those considerations are laid out on a sort of industry by industry or sort of um, basis, to Tim's point, I think that is a that's a sort of compliance roadmap for each of those areas. And I, I think we would have to expect at this point that OFAC will uh, really expect nothing less if you're in those areas and if, you, if you're failing to do some or all of those things and that is certainly going to be held against you if there's, even if there are inadvertent violations that, that are, you're, you're tied to in the future. So would, as Tim said, would encourage everybody to look at that if you're in any of those industries. And in fact, this, the whole, just a, a couple of quick points on, on this, I think Tim covered most of it, but um, as he said, this is not sort of anything 
terribly new. It's again, it's sort of repackaged in an interesting way because you know Iran, Syria, North Korea are the the three countries that are the focus, and but they have been in the past, and so this just kind of it aggregates everything and it and it takes everything and again, as Tim said, slices it on kind of a function by function, industry by industry basis in terms of all the various touch points in the shipping, in the maritime industry, in the shipping industry globally. And and so that I think is is interesting. And um, in fact, one of the pointers, I think in the, I think it was in the Ship Industry Association um, uh, uh, page in the annex, they say, you should forward this, you should forward this advisory to your members, <laughs> to your members. So there, it's pretty clear that this was put together as a, as a as a compliance roadmap and as a, that people are um you know expected to be familiar with if you're in this industry and 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 again this industry is wide and diverse and varied and, and so it's not just ship owners and operators it's ports it's flag registries it's insurers it's financial institutions it's and everything in between so um i think it i think various aspects of this um ecosystem have uh, varying levels of compliance and familiarity with sanctions on the, you know, insurance and financial on the one end, largely uh, probably a little more sophisticated because they have to deal with these issues in other aspects of their business, perhaps in other parts of the ecosystem, not as much. So yeah, it's, it's aware, this is an awareness building exercise. It's a compliance roadmap and it is a shot across the bow, no pun intended, that everybody should be aware of the risks and should be adopting a risk-based approach consistent with the OFAC framework and consistent with um, the circumstances of the business that you're doing. As Tim said, if you know, they say very clearly, if you're operating in or near any of these areas, in or near Syria or Iran or North Korea, you should have enhanced due diligence procedures. And if you don't, that's going to be, I'm sure that the reading between the lines that could very well be held against you if you end up being um, engaged in violations, even if inadvertently. So I think those are, those are really the big things. It is, it is a useful document. It is, it is a useful collection of information um, for any compliance professionals out there that have anything to do with any of these industries would, would certainly encourage you to take a close look at this if you haven't already and, and work some of these items into your training protocols and into your own compliance procedures because it's all laid out there for you pretty pretty clearly and if nothing else um, being able to acknowledge and say that you've taken OFAC's advisory and guidance into account is uh, is going to be could be useful down the road. I should also add that this was a joint advisory technically with State Department and the Coast Guard as well so um, it does sweep more broadly than just OFAC, but at the end of the day, it's all about OFAC in our view, so. It's all about OFAC using its quarantine time to put together helpful consolidation of materials that Ex we've already exactly. seen Exactly, this, like this feels like the pet project of one or more OFACers who were finally able to get to it in the last two months. So congratulations to, to you for, for getting this off your plate. Um, I know that's a good feeling. Uh, so with that, let's go to pause for sound effect the lighting round uh we have finally we have three items to cover here in the last few minutes um we're going to start with iran and we're going to start with a recent um case that was in the news which is um just been indicted uh at this point um but there was an extradition of the lead defendant saeed shahidian 
who was the CEO of a company called Payment24. And he was extradited just a few days ago from the UK, which is notable because despite what people think, extraditing um, folks from the UK to the US is not always as easy as it may seem. Um, and he was, he was extradited to the District of Minnesota where the case was brought. And essentially the allegations there are, he ran a company called Payment24 based in Iran, whose sole purpose was helping Iranian nationals in Iran evade US sanctions and be able to get access to US goods uh, by uh, fraudulently obtaining accounts and uh, commercial goods and using fake PayPal accounts and prepaid credit cards and, and et cetera. And so again, these are all just allegations at this point. Um, but the quotes that are excerpted from the website and some of their materials are pretty, are pretty brazen if, if, this is, if this is all to be believed um, in terms of what, the, what their underlying business model was, which truly was, let us help you evade US sanctions to be able to get US goods. And um, so I, I, don't have, I don't have a ton to say on this other than, you know, this is kind of an interesting this will be an interesting one to watch play out and to see if, um, if there's a, if, if my guess, given the, the type of allegations that we have here, um, is that we're going to see this resolved via plea and um, that'll happen at some point, you know, in the next six to 12 months, uh, just a guess, but that's my guess. Um, if the, if the evidence that seems to be backing up the indictment is to, the indictments to be credited, but a couple of interesting practice pointers here in terms of, uh, you know, some of the red flags that we're always talking about and thinking about, you know, there was apparently guidance given to their customers not to ever try to log on through Iranian IP addresses. There were connections and addresses that were being used in the UAE um, to sort of uh, get, you know, U.S. Um, entities off the trail of what the scheme really was. And as we know, and as we've talked about, UAE is a is a very popular diversion uh, sort of way station for uh, things being diverted uh, illicitly, illegally to Iran from the U.S. Um, things like that. And again, I think just the the nature of the scheme just sort of caught us. Um, you know, we don't we don't see too many quite like this at this point. So um, that's really a, that's really I think at this point all I have to add on that, and then I'll turn it to Tim for any. Yeah, two quick points. I think this will be lightning. Um, the first is a systematic evasion financial services tool is something we haven't seen, like at least not this brazen, for lack of a better term. And again, we're relying on the allegations, but assuming that's true, it seems pretty open for a financial services sanctions evasion tool. Uh, the other thing is the red flag about the UAE locations. I mean, a, a, a what, what I would assume happened was that you have U.S. customers that are getting a lot of orders and payments from the UAE for goods that are then being sent to the UAE. I think from a compliance standpoint, um, the U.S. companies are going to want to look at that as a potential red flag and try and figure out if those goods are really going to the UAE or as here and as, you know, is at least relatively often the case, they're being ordered from the UAE, but really they're being sent on to Iran. And in fact, here they were being ordered from Iran and the UAE website location was just a, um, 
was just a, a something that was set up to try and disguise where the orders were really coming from. I, I will say, if you were creating a sanctions evasion tool, you might want to think about whether or not you've got had a website address in somewhere other than the UAE. Um, <laughs> if you're going to do this well, but apparently, to be, cl to be clear, Tim is not offering advice not, on how to evade not, sanctions. Right, that is not what is that, happening here. But but you would, you would think that you would not use a an obvious red flag location um, as the location that you would then be sending the payment orders from. But yeah, and presumably, yeah, no, good point. And presumably, we don't have the details on this, but presumably, the way this all came about and the reason that. This this is, uh, case was brought in Minnesota is that there was a, I would assume, a U.S. company in the district that brought this to the attention of the FBI. This was an FBI investigated case because they probably noticed this suspicion, suspicious pattern of activity. Yep. And then the thread got pulled and it went from there. So kudos to who, whoever it was that did catch this and brought this forward. But um, as a broader practice pointer, I think Tim's exactly right that as a, uh, you know, a known diversion point as the sort of hub of all this um, was perhaps destined to be detected sooner or later. Yeah. Uh, so, so with that, let's stay on the web, but let's move to Syria. And I'll... Let's move to Syria. I think this is the first time in the history of our podcast that we have <laughs> talked about Syria sanctions. And really, that's probably the most notable fact about uh, this enforcement action. But we wanted to talk about Syria. And so we saw recently that really last week, there was a company called EKT Katrangi, which has been on the SDM list since July of 2018. It's a Lebanese company that was that the OFAC thought was assisting uh, the Syrian Chemical Weapons Agency in procuring items for their advanced weapons program. And, and so it's the, the official name of the, the Syrian agency is the Syria's Scientific Studies and Research Center, or the SSRC, which does work uh, according to U.S. sources with the advanced weapons program of the Assad government in Syria. And so it was put on the SDN list in July of 2018. Um, in May last week, we, we saw that uh, their website had actually been seized by ICE and DHS pursuant to a seizure warrant that had been issued by the, the district court up in Massachusetts. And so this is kind of an example of the fact that once you're on the SDN list, that does not mean that enforcement actions uh, do not continue. And, and apparently there was some district court action in Massachusetts that uh, pursued a, a seizure warrant, and the, the, the website is marked seized by ICE, and so you can't go to that website to place orders anymore. Yeah, a super lightning point on this is that um, I would say that the HSI uh, intervening to seize the website uh, of, a, of an actor that has been on the, on the SDN list for two years that's somewhat notable. We don't we don't Agreed. see that that often. Um, we we do talk sometimes about our you know actors and entities that are gonna that have been put on the list that um, at the end of the day just don't care and they continue on with their malign activities and they continue because they're being supported by their home government or they can exist kind of outside the bubble of the U.S. financial system. That clearly is I think what was happening here. Uh, but um, so interesting that this even popped and was caught to sort of shut it down. Um, and uh, yeah, beyond that, not not too much more to say other than, as Tim said, we just kind of wanted an excuse to reference a Syria sanctions matter because we haven't had a chance yet. But um, again, just um, maybe just maybe the only thing to be taken from that is, um, you know, uh, 
continuing, this is a bit of a screening practice pointer, perhaps if, if, if others out there were still doing business with this website or this company uh, and may not have realized that they were subject to sanctions, um, you know, even, even the most kind of seemingly innocuous of activities, you know, going to a commercial website to purchase, purchase goods could have potentially exposed you to some issues here. But uh, now, at least with respect to that website, shut down for the time being. So, one, And one quick final lightning point on this. It, it, the original designation, as I understand it, was done in conjunction with the French authorities. So this is another good example of multilateral, multilateral co cooperation, multinational cooperation and enforcement in this area, um, you know, at least at the, the outset. Yes, and, and so that brings us to our final lightning uh, bolt of the day, which is um, was an OFAC enforcement action that was uh, announced. I think this actually was announced now a little over two weeks ago. I think it came out just before the China episode, so we didn't have time to cover it then, but we did want to circle back to it now. And this is um, the settlement that was reached by Biomin America with OFAC relating to some violations of the Cuba sanctions. And essentially here, the uh, what's in the notice is the idea that Biomin America uh, and its U.S. Um, U.S. parts of its U.S. business were involved in essentially arranging um, for uh, the sales of agricultural commodities to a Cuban entity via its foreign affiliates. So there was an acknowledgement that there was some restrictions on U.S. persons and an understanding of that at least on some level, but there was, in the execution, it was, it was, not, it was not necessarily done correctly. And so the US persons were involved in helping to arrange these sales through foreign affiliates of the company to a Cuban entity. So two, only real two points I wanna make on this. Number one, so even though the, the goods that were sold were um, pretty substantial into the eight figures, um, you know, the fine here was, was just a few hundred thousand dollars. So it was, it was pretty, it was pretty small. Uh, and there was a voluntary disclosure and it seems that they've made all the necessary compliance um, enhancements that they need to. But the two, the two points that I want to make are, um, you know, number one, in the notice, it was pointed out that this likely could have been authorized under the general license. Uh, or at the very least, e even if uh, um, if there was a request to get a specific license on this, uh, it may very well have been authorized, even if it even if the activity technically fell outside the parameters of the of the specific GL relating to exports of agricultural commodities to Cuba. So that's number one, and I think that's in part the reason that the penalty here is is quite light. And number two is OFAC makes a point, and I want to read this um, of saying U.S. companies can benefit from seeking appropriate advice and guidance when contemplating business involving U.S. sanctions programs rather than developing alternative methods. So in some ways, that's a self-interested plug for me and for you to call me and Tim if you have these types of questions or, or any of our ilk. Um, it, it seems here that perhaps this was something that was um, it presumably handled in-house and there was a feeling that this could be done consistent with the sanctions and, and apparently it was not. So, um, you know, the fact of just consulting with an outside attorney or consulting with experts who think about and view these things, even if, even if just on a, on a phone call uh, or on a, on a uh, email basis is, um, is, is, can be advisable when you're dealing with this, especially Cuba, as we come back to over and over again, that people tend to get things wrong when it comes to the Cuba sanctions because they are a bird of a slightly different feather. So that's really all I have to say about. So I, I 
referred to this enforcement action as the shake my head enforcement action because <laughs> you look at this and you just can't help not only shaking your head, but it just reminds me of things that I've seen before. Often when uh, sales individuals who know just enough to, to be dangerous get involved with these sorts of sanctions compliance decisions. And so you see this, there's this kernel going on there that I've seen plenty of times before where there's this knowledge that foreign country, third party countries, you know, are not affected by Cuba sanctions. And that's true in the abstract, right? I mean, a Spanish company that is completely independent of the US can do business in Cuba generally without regard to the US sanctions against Cuba. And so you get this knuckleheaded idea, well, we've got a Spanish company and it's a Spanish subsidiary. They can do the Cuba trade and we'll be fine. And then, they, they, you know, to, that's not even correct on its own, but then to make things worse, the US company is then completely involved in all the business decisions because it's the Spanish company that's doing it and that's, that's allowed. So we, we can participate in that and approve payments. And, and range. range and, and yeah. It's just, it's, it's just like you've got one bad idea and a bunch of people saying, yeah, that'll work. And, and I see it more often than I should. And so I think OFAC gave some wise counsel in saying U.S. companies can benefit from seeking appropriate advice and guidance when contemplating business involving U.S. sanctions. It really, um, don't develop alternative methods through non-U.S. companies in order to avoid the prohibitions because you can't do it. Um, it. Certainly, you can't do it with respect to Cuba, and this stuff is pretty hard. Don't. Yeah, no, agree with all that. And Don't so try to, this at home. Yeah, so to recap, <laughs> although you would have to we would be doing it from home too. So I, in well, fairness, I guess everybody's doing it from home. But right. uh, to recap, Tim's Twitter length uh, response to this would have been SMH, period. Exactly. Uh, and and that, would, that would be his lightning, his true lightning response. To this true one. So, lightning. Um, okay. So with that, I think we're done. We're wrapped for this week. Uh, again, thank you for joining us uh, for the latest episode of Embargoed. We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, for those who are here in the States, we hope uh, you had a good Memorial Day weekend, uh, such as it is under the, in the time of quarantine. Uh, and that, uh, again, if you've enjoyed the pod, that you will subscribe, that you will give us a rating, uh, and that you'll tell uh, friends and family and, and others about it and encourage them to listen as well. Um, and until next time, please stay home, stay safe, stay well, and of course, stay sanctions-free. Stay healthy. Stay sanctions-free, everybody. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.